0: Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. Michael Lee, uh, Supervisory Special Agent, uh, the Western uh, Cybercrime Unit for IRSCI. Uh, And Michael, I was uh, really happy to be able to see your presentation at the uh, West Coast uh, AML forum back in May, and at the time thought it was not only compelling in terms of what you were working on, but also, I didn't have enough information really on on all the excellent work that IRSCI does in the cyberspace. I assumed it was there, but didn't really know. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. But first, uh, I want to thank you for taking some time with me today.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: All right. So... Uh, Michael, before we, I want to ask you some specific questions and some sp- specific topics we want to go through. But just in general, to my earlier point, uh, talk a bit high level about how IRSCI engages in uh, cybercrime and cybersecurity. Obviously, some of your partners at uh, the Justice Department, Homeland Security, FBI, all work in this space to some degree. Uh, but what are, what's the IRS role in this very challenging area?
1: So IRS Criminal Investigation has a large role in identifying illegal activity within the crypto community. Right now we're attacking darknet markets that are involved in other activities such as CSAM and narcotics. We are trying to identify mixers that are not licensed with FinCEN since that can promote money laundering and illegal money can go through there without typical AML procedures. We're also looking for illegal crypto exchangers, especially people on the street level who connects say the drug market to darknet market individuals. For tax and tax crimes, we're looking for people that are using virtual assets and and crypto, similarly as people used to use foreign bank accounts. Those are the biggest areas that we're looking at. And we're doing this because there are real victims out there that are either losing their money, um, that are byproducts of victims of the darknet markets. And, And in a way it prevents and all of these things are bad publicity for crypto and prevents impediments for people to adopt cryptocurrency and using it more often.
0: You, you know, in the, in the crypto space, and, and we at Right Source have, have done some work with uh, uh, entities and platforms that work in there like uh, Coinbase and, and others. What's your sense uh, of the crypto community's um, ability in this area? Ability, I mean, simply from a compliance Space Because, you know, from my perspective, if you're in traditional banks or you're in a MSB, you sort of have a history of understanding what your requirements are, what compliance expectations are. But in, in the crypto area, is that an additional challenge not to get uh, professionals in that space to do the right thing, but just to understand what their obligations might be or what they need to do. I'm just really curious. And, and you may not know the answers to all of that, but I, I would just think in general that you've interacted with uh, folks in the, in, in the crypto community. And, and obviously, you know, you're know, you trying to both explain to them why you're doing what you're doing in terms of, like you said, tax evasion, the ability to, to move value that uh, unfortunately enables you know, drug trafficking, human trafficking, whatever it is. But what's your general view of the, of the crypto community? Are they, are they trying to get it? Um, are, are they being uh, su- supportive of the end game with the end game being people, you know, making sure that there's transparency? Uh, again, a, a lot to unpack there, but just in general, what's your take on, on working with, and I've sometimes against, because you have to prosecute, people in the crypto space?
1: I will say that for the vast majority most people want to do the right thing, and mm-hmm. most of the companies that we encounter are trying to do the right thing. I think because it's a newer area and it's evolving, it's going to take time to grow. But for sure. the most part, we have a good relationship with most of the exchanges that you typically would, would see on TV or see advertising. They work with, with us uh, when we have questions or we send them legal process. We don't have an issue with that, and, and they're getting better. It just it takes time, right? You're, you're talking about a community that five years ago was in a very low place not low and bad in terms those lows is growing and now as it's getting bigger and expanding they have to expand with it and they are i i feel like in five years from now they'll probably be in a very similar situation as your typical bank or M- msb with regard to all of those things but yes they I, are doing a pretty good job i would say of, of the of the people that you would typically use they do a good job or doing it trying to do a good job of uh the procedures are talking about, AML. Yeah.
0: yeah, that's a great point because you're sort of learning together. So, um, some some of these terms I'm generally familiar with, but I'd really like your take on it. One is decentralized finance. Uh, what what does DeFi mean, and how can that be used in your view, or can it be used for for money laundering and other movements of illicit funds?
1: Sure. So I'll just start with what centralized finance is, and then talk about decentralized finance. Uh-huh. So. In centralized finance, you have a typical bank, right? There's an intermediary. So let's say you're trying to trade stocks. You have a brokerage account. To open a brokerage account, you have to do a number of things. You have to get approval. You have to wire money. And a lot. sometimes you're restricted by the number of trades you can conduct on a single day. Well, decentralized finance is different. You only need a crypto wallet. You have more control of your money. There's potentially less fees. You don't have wire fees or account overage fees. So those things kind of clear up. Secondly, if you are a user, let's say you open an account today on a decentralized exchange, you could trade that day. You don't have to wait three days for your money to clear. You can just execute trades immediately. Similarly also, so for example, in a decentralized exchange, you're, they're basically open 24 seven. You can make a trade any time of the day. You're not limited by uh, the hours of the stock market which is beneficial to the user. There's a lot of good things that decentralized finance is doing. What we want to do in law enforcement is to make sure that can grow. We don't have a problem with that. What we want is for the decentralized exchanges to follow AML and know your customer rules because that can prevent the bad actors from entering the ecosystem and basically poisoning the entire water. We don't want it to be ruined. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that does. Absolutely. Um, another um, we love acronyms in the AML space, but another acronym that's not AML related, but it's uh, it's in it's in common parlance are non fungible tokens or NF NFTs. I'm generally familiar that uh, they can represent real world items like artwork and real estate. But talk a bit about <laughs> NFTs and why is that also a challenge for you folks?
1: Sure. So we are concerned because. NFTs, there is not as regulated like a security. So in security, it's it's serious are heavily regulated. So it's hard, it's a lot harder to get away with a scam. In NFTs, you can have what's called wash trading. So the buyer and the seller are on the same side of a the transaction. They create artificial value, artificial demand. And when that happens, you're basically bouncing the, the asset back and forth and you're slowly raising the value. And people see this. And they'll say, oh, i got to hop in on this because they have FOMO, fear of missing out. And they'll get involved in it. What people don't realize is that a lot of times there's a group of investors backing this product. And right. at the same time, they have a social media team out there on Instagram, TikTok, uh, things like that. And that, is, that creates this, this surge mentality or this mentality where they're preying on your social behavior. You see something going up. So I have to get in before it's too late. And a lot of times the marketing that comes with it is, hey, you're pre, you're, you're early, as a you're early, get in and out it before it's too late. And so people will feel like I'm getting a deal or a bargain and then boom, the value goes up and they pull a scam and the, the value deflates back to zero. And those people get, all the people that invested their money lose all of their money. Right. And that's where we get involved. It's very similar to like a pump and dump scheme that used to happen with stocks a while ago. Um, is it I like to go back and actually address one thing I said in my previous yeah, question sure, right. okay yeah so yeah, we talked about decentralized finance I wanted to bring this up the issue is that people feel like nobody owns it but what we've identified in a lot of cases with decentralized um, mixers stuff like that is that it's not it's controlled by one person there may be like 15 or 20 computers out there but one person controls all of it or two people control all of it so we want people to be aware that you need to really do your research as to what is decentralized is it decentralized in the sense where you know there's one owner or two owners that's not really decentralized or is it really that nobody actually owns it and it's hard to, to parse that out so you want people to be aware of that and look for those kind of things when they when they make their investments
0: you know the, the the nft as you said before it's similar to pump and dump but is it yeah. dissimilar in that reasons why nft's could be expensive is because they're in a bubble of sorts, right? They, they expect whoever's buying it thinks it's going to go up and then and they, and they want to get out as quickly as possible. So, uh,
1: yeah, that, it it, actually, yeah, yeah, it go creates a, go, like a feeding frenzy almost where yeah. the buyer, when you do the first wash transaction where the buyer and seller are artificially inflating the value, that starts creating the bubble. And then we had the social media aspect put onto it. It just grows the bubble. Now the frenzy starts to occur. And then all of a sudden you have this humongous mm-hmm. bubble that the initial buyer and in seller was like, oh, this is great. And then, boom, they're gone. And right. so, yeah, that's, that's exactly right. It's it's a typical bubble that you would see in anything else. And then
0: you you made, uh, you made were mentioning pump and dump schemes, and those have been around for quite a while, but t- remind folks what those are as well. It's obviously similar to what you just described, but they've also been around probably since people started selling securities.
1: Yeah, it's, it's just where you would try to sell something that is probably worthless, and you build. Uh, artificial value out of it and then uh, when the the value gets high enough you dump it and then drive the price back down to zero and then the people that that came in either some point in the middle to later in the game lose all of their money that's essentially the problem that happens
0: and you had said when we talked offline you had also used the phrase rug pulls which to me sounds like like you just said get the rug pulled out from under you but is that just another name for pump and dump rug pulls?
1: yeah that's that's the the how people referring to it now, but essentially, not necessarily. It's that's a version of the rug pull. People pull it out from under you, and now you don't have your money. Right. Yeah, that's 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 the common terminology now.
0: You know, and we didn't really talk about this beforehand, but um, I'm sure you're comfortable discussing. But you talked about at the West Coast Forum. You talked about a case study that you worked on um, about a uh, unlicensed business that exchanged, I think, at least thirteen billion dollars in Bitcoin and cash. Um, can you talk at least high level? Talk a little bit about that. That was uh, uh, my notes. Say Operation Crypto, whom or Yume. I wasn't sure. But, yeah, yeah. But your presentation so, was very compelling. But give us give us some of the high level and may, maybe the sort of the red flags that, that came out of that that would be helpful to practitioners that are listening to you talk about all these other issues.
1: Sure. So one of the things that that so in this case it was thirteen million dollars. So we had an individual who was going on the website Local Bitcoins? he was an illegal cryptocurrency exchanger. And his role is basically an intermediary between two worlds. You have the dark net market vendors who deal primarily in cryptocurrency and your street level criminals, typically narcotics who deal in a cash-based cash based business. The problem is how do, you, how do they get the money, one for the cash side, how do they hide it? And then for the crypto side, how do you cash it out? Right. Well, the exchanger is the intermediary between the two, and what we learned is that their fees are typically higher than a regular exchanger because obviously they're doing things illegally. They don't ask for KYC. They don't have any AML procedures in place. Um, and so, some of the highlights that we did it was we once we identify one side of the other of the transaction. In this case, it was the it was the darknet market vendor. We had them do a meet with the with, the, uh, with the, the cryptocurrency exchanger who had gotten the money from the street side. And that's how we kind of tied into back what was illegal about it. So we were able to exchange money um, through some operations, uh, exchange cryptocurrency through the operations. And eventually we were able to understand the role in the network and how the play between the cryptocurrency exchanger, how they can connect us to both sides of criminal behavior and how we can identify um, a lot of other criminals that we probably never would have found other. Uh, except for him
0: so what did you learn from that and what can we learn from that that could help us identify similar schemes let's start with the on the one side what you guys learned but then on the other side what what can the private sector take away from that because one of the things that uh whenever we talk to folks like yourself that we we try to glean from that is what can we learn from the smart investigators that you and, and your, your team works with, that you're involved with, that we can be more, we, meaning the AML, private sector community, can be more proactive? So what would you recommend and what did you learn from this yeah. that uh, that we can pick up on and, like, takeaways for us going forward?
1: So for the exchanger, they have a problem. They're taking in too much cash from the cash side. They can't just keep it all in their house. So you can't, nobody's going to hold a million dollars of cash in their house. So they have to put it somewhere. So typically there's either microtransactions, the ATMs, where someone will just slowly try to feed money into the, an account using either a fake business or something like that that has no legitimate business purpose. So from a bank from a bank perspective, look for businesses that seem to be getting random deposits in smaller amounts, but don't have payroll, don't have you know typical business expenses. That's a big red flag. It doesn't make a lot of sense. And let us know about it. As for so the other problem you could deal with the cash problem is you go to a casino. So for the practitioners who are listening that are involved in that kind of business, that's an easy way to move the money in and out. And in our case, there we worked with a couple of casinos who you know had great AML procedures and were able to identify in and out timing and give us great intelligence about that individual, that person and their habits at the establishment and they helped understand their day-to-day transactions. So when you have those those types of situations, we would ask the banks to look for smaller transactions that may not necessarily raise a red flag, and maybe more that this account has no business activity, but why are they getting money? Or casino side, this person's here every single day and either just takes in the same amount of money or roughly the same amount of money every single day. That's kind of a, what we're looking for, for from an AML perspective.
0: You know, um... Uh, I, I teach a class here in Northern Virginia on money laundering and terrorism. It's a graduate class and uh, we just started doing the summer session. But one of the things that we talk about is the variety of ways you can join this community. So whether it government roles, uh, various private sector roles, advisory roles, you know, law firms, whatever. I'm interested in, in how you uh, got involved with the IRS and sort of what was your your career path. Maybe talk a little bit about um, your decisioning. You know, out at, of at college uh, or whenever you made the decision that this was something you wanted to pursue, and and what, from your perspective, besides the obvious, has been has been the value uh, here? Because obviously, you've been very successful in your career. These cases are obviously very important to to the not just the community, but the the economy and and IRS in general, but. Uh, if you're talking to some, if you're talking to my class, for example, you're trying to say, "Hey, th- this is this is how I got here." Um, give give us maybe the highlights of of your uh, of your journey.
1: Sure. So one of my roommate in, in law school, he actually became an agent before me, and he said, "Hey, you got to meet meet an individual." So I met someone in San Jose, California. I met him. He says, "Hey, you should you should look at this job. Here's the benefits of it. you get to do things that." And build team and work in teams in a way that a lot of places you would never have that that opportunity. And you get to do, you get to look at uh, criminals in a way that most people never get to do. And so I would say I've had a great career. I'm very blessed to work with great people. Um, You get to build camaraderie with people that you become lifelong friends with. You know, I, I still talk with a lot of people I started with in DC on a daily basis, and you get to, you would build relationships because. We're like any other law enforcement agency. We do search forms. We go and, do, and essentially put our lives on the line when we go hit a house. And that sure. builds a level of camaraderie that you can't get anywhere else. So if for the people listening that are looking or if I was talking to your class, I would say it's a great chance to really build friendship in a way that, you know, that are really built on trust that you wouldn't get in a lot of other places.
0: Oh, no, that's, that's excellent, Michael. Let me get you out of here on this and really, again, appreciate you. Uh, talking about all this and giving us a a clear sense of how IRS CI is involved in so many aspects. I've been fortunate, Don Don Fort's on our advisory board, and and I know uh, Jim Lee and and others, and just working with IRS over decades. I certainly recognize the importance here, but I think, uh, and you guys do a a decent job of marketing yourselves, but I think we, those of us that don't work at IRS, need to do a better job of explaining the value that you folks bring uh, in, in this very broad area that we're in. But the question that I have relates to partnership and working with the private sector. And, you know, we did a, uh, the West Coast AML forum is sort of based on that concept. We did something on the East Coast, very similar um, to, you know, here's how you work with law enforcement and vice versa. So the question to you, given all the work that you, you're doing um, what do you need from the private sector uh, that helps you do your job and uh, you know what what advice do you have for our colleagues on this side on the private sector side about reaching out and working with you and your colleagues so in general what do you need uh, from I'll say from us but from the private sector and how would you recommend we improve that
1: so what, let me talk about how so the IRS you mentioned before we are the number we are the number one user of FinCEN AML type data. Right. We consume it the most, and we view it the most. What I would say is to the community listening, we would like a, people to be very clear about what they think is happening. A lot of times, we come across partners who are afraid to just say it. I think they don't trust themselves to just say it to us. We want you to tell us. You guys are the experts. You're in the day to day boots on the ground people who are seeing the activity. We want to know exactly what you're seeing. Just spell it out as plain as day. We think this person is involved in this type of fraud. Because those are the type of buzzwords to us that tell us this is a serious thing that we need to talk about. And and as we when we look at cases and trying to vet what information we should use and what we shouldn't use, the it's like everything else. The the if you're the the squeaky wheel, you get the grease. So be very clear about what you actually think it is. If you think it's really bad, just say it. And there are contacts around the country with IRS. We have an office probably in every single state, I think. Feel free to reach out to us. We would love to talk to you and to hear what you have going on because I'm sure if you have questions, we will just answer the questions that you have. Even if it's not necessarily criminal related. It could be, hey, we're not sure what to do about this situation. Right. We're open to hearing it. It's nothing wrong with it. Don't feel like you can't approach us. We want to be approached by you. We want to learn what's happening in in your area and how we can help you. Because ultimately the more we have a beneficial partnership, the more we can identify the bad things that are happening.
0: That's, that's excellent advice. And as we both know, being lawyers, the suspicious activity reports to SARs uh, do allow and do permit. You can file a SAR, you can pick up the phone and call a contact at, at IRS or some of the other agencies and sort of say, hey, look, we're filing this SAR we think this is more than just a filing. This is an ongoing current issue that uh, we think you should know about. And there's a safe harbor for doing so. So I think sometimes you're right. Uh, institutions might be a little reticent. The ones that have the you know excellent uh, relationships with you and your colleagues don't worry about that as much. But those that maybe aren't sure or maybe they're new to the space are concerned, oh, I don't know that I can share that information. But they clearly can and I think your point is very well taken. And I can just tell you, from being involved with your colleagues, as they said for many decades, IRS CI uh, regions around the country were notorious in a good way for holding roundtables with bankers, um, sharing broad information and typologies, uh, recognizing something that a bank's done that's been uh, needs to be honored, and vice versa, you know, banks honoring IRS agents for doing some great things. So there's a lot of history of your agency working closely with the financial sector. And it, it sounds like it's starting to happen in the crypto space and the fintech space for you guys as well. So I think you're right. I don't think you can ever emphasize enough the importance of partnership. And, and I think, again, you you folks have, have been models for that and really appreciate that. But, uh, you know, I said I'd get you out of here on this, but any any last uh thoughts advice things that you want to mention before we close and again really appreciate you taking time today
1: yeah one thing is when you're talking to an irs special agent you're talking to someone who has a background in 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 finance or accounting so we're going to understand the world that you're in so you don't have to feel like you're we we can we can understand exactly what you're saying to us. so don't feel it i want the banks and, and other msbs to understand hey just call us. We we'll understand. So just talk to us and we can probably figure out a way to help you. Uh, thanks again for having me on the podcast. First of all, we appreciate it.
0: Yeah. And... Michael Lee, uh, Supervisory Special Agent, the Western uh, Cybercrime Unit uh, uh, out in LA. Thanks again so much. Uh, stay safe out there. We appreciate your time today.
1: Appreciate it. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations brought to you by AML Source. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.